Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. And let's pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. Amen. Amen. So I was thinking about what happened during COVID and we had the the pivot, right? So we're going to do online and stuff. And second time students were just heartbroken. Um, Just there are a lot of tears when we announced we're going home, everybody. And my colleagues and I have all noticed since then that students are incredibly grateful and friendly. Last year I had a student that shook my hand after every class. Thanks, professor. (laughs) But it still is like I haven't really done anything. And it still is students... Thanking you after class is not just me. And so I don't know what that really is all about. But compared yeah, to- Yeah, I can't imagine. When I was what, a student- what actually, what actually happened during- Did you have to cancel part of a semester or did everything move online? What exactly- Everything moved online that first spring and it was 2020, I think. It was ugly watching all the old, old guard learn technology. Yeah. Oh man, it was a mess. I just, I want to apologize to every student. Next semester, we started on, on campus, and we had masks and shields and all that kind of stuff, and social distancing, just a weird, weird time. Right? In, the, and, in the fall? Yeah, but then there's a special quarantine area in the dorm, and that filled up, and so we send students home about halfway through, through the semester. And the next semester, we were all on campus. It remained weird um, with the distancing and stuff, but we got through it. <clears throat> but the, the vibe on the campus, I think students were just... Really, really happy to be together. And it's just, so I don't know. I'm not looking for anything negative, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, thinking back on MLC, what's what your first impressions? I'm just feeling really grateful right now. Yeah, I I remember looking back on it. I remember the the daily worship, compline, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and just how much. Uh, how easy it is to take that for granted while you're there. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, especially myself now, the position I'm in, it's not very often that you're surrounded by so many people that share your faith, which is, um, uh, despite the, you know, you can put yourself in a silo and you don't expose yourself to the, you know, other beliefs and you don't have to engage with that type of thing. Um, there are benefits to that as well, uh, being with people that you are have a very strong mm-hmm. connection with. I also remember uh, being able to play organ whenever I wanted was great. Mm. I think the is it still the the campus with the greatest organ to student ratio? <laughs> I had never heard that stat, but I would believe I, it. I think it's something like that. I thought that was um. <laughs> That was good. Let me think a little <clears throat> bit more because that's a. Uh... Hmm. Now the worship was definitely one of the things mm-hmm. that I think, especially specific to MLC, was like a very grateful for. Um. I think, because because I went to a college 
uh, Beloit College for a year right. before that, and you don't you don't have that um, right. You don't have that there. New Ulm is also just such a charming little town. Mm. The just talking to people about it, even in Minneapolis, it's kind of uh, <laughs> it's a bit interesting. Where the you know. Don't don't they like capture the mayor every year wearing huge <laughs> costumes and parade him around the, 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 the downtown? Yeah, yeah. The mayor. And then the, the Narn, beer festivals. Narn, well, rob are, your sleep, those Narnin. I mean, that's some freaky stuff. But yeah, it. But I, you're right. I was working one time, I think, when they were walking down, and my, I just what is going on? My here? kids were just home, and they just love Noam. They just flat out love it, and uh, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, and it, I would be remiss to to not mention the you know, cross country mm-hmm. as like a very core component of what it was like to be at MLC for me, at least right. I'm sure. I mean, that's a, you know, there's programs, athletic prom- programs, every, every campus, but, uh, but that one specifically running around in Flandreau and then staying, I even stayed up in the, in the summertime and I would work in New Ulm for the summer and just move dorms. They had uh you know, student, Students could stay in, I think, uh, one of the one of the dorms up there for the summer, and so that was uh, I was kind of in New Ulm for about. Well, I ended up being there for seven mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. completely without right. moving away. So, right. um, getting getting to know Flandro really well. Yeah, uh, over that to, time, used yeah. to live in Flandro myself until I stopped coaching. And the Hidden Valley Ranch <clears throat> run all the way out in the oh tradition past all those cornfields <laughs> and. That little four mile loop out there, oh, right. with the beautiful view as you go down into that and little fall. valley. Oh, forget about oh, it. Oh, so good. Yeah, you know, I admire our sister colleges, Bethany and and uh, WLC in Milwaukee. Talking to those uh, faculty, it's like, how, how do they create the kind of community we have? You know, with roughly half the students not being um, from our confession of faith, and then you, you end up having silos and pockets. But a whole campus family united. It's just it's just very, very special. I was just thinking about that today. Having the time of my life, all all four of my sections just are superior discussers. And it's just been where I like to say the unscripted stuff is the best. And it's just been a semester of unscripted conversations that are just to die for. So really, really having a great time these days. Anyway, I'm glad your memories are fond and it sounds like they are. Yeah. So, uh, no concern about the disclaimer. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what you were going to say, so I'm glad I got He's through turn that. it into a snake in front of me here. <laughs> so, um, I want to take a similar approach as we did in the last episode, if we can segue. In the last episode, before we talked about some hard questions, some really hard questions, we just kind of refreshed ourselves with the basics of resurrection apologetics so that we could discuss how hard questions in the light of a risen savior, you know, and then not be afraid of the questions. Similarly, the second core issue besides the resurrection we've said often is New Testament apologetics. So the phenomenal reliability of the New Testament. We're going to get into the weeds on that. I think in the next episode with a whole list of bullet points to think about, I'm actually, I actually have a devotion I've written about Luke. And so we've talked about Luke. Our admiration for Luke has kind of come up. This is maybe a little bit more formal, maybe include some things that we didn't already. So, so uh, devotion on the New Testament, and then we can confront three more of the hard questions that I think are fairly common. 
in our culture. So here we go. The text is from Luke 1. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, Luke says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And that's the title, The Certainty of the Things You've Been Taught. So there were some devotions before this by colleagues. Um, and so my first line says, we turn now to Luke because some other devotions have come already. We turn now to Luke, traveling companion of Paul and world-class historian. He combs the documents and interviews the witnesses. He begins where it all began, to be a fly on the wall. Quote, a sword will pierce your soul? He said that? Oh, Mary. As to Jesus' resurrection, you could have you could have the where were you when conversation on any street corner in Jerusalem. Credentialed historians charge Luke with, quote, habitual accuracy. I know we've said some of this. He perfectly captures the atmosphere of a Jerusalem in Ephesus or Philippi. What he gets right about the fluid politics of Rome, in particular times and places, is, by all accounts, astonishing. Although he didn't have to, Luke constantly wagers his reputation. Check me on this, he says over and over. C.S. Lewis commented, I've been reading myth all my life. This is not what they are like. Luke wagers everything. If his unembellished reporting is wrong in the particulars, then folks can safely dismiss him when it comes to his true subject, truth of another kind. From G.K. Chesterton, Allow one sun in your sky, one mystery too bright to look into, and all else is lit up in that light. And God came near, all the way down, all the way in. And a quote of him line, Nails, spear shall pierce him through, the cross he'll bear for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. If Christmas is a gathering storm of sadness and anxiety, we have much we'd like to say to you over an open gospel. The obsessive Luke, the urgent Mark, the timeless Matthew, the open book we call John. But this is first. Your reconciliation to, quote, God from God and light from light is history, actual history, yet charged with the holy just the same. At a particular time, in a particular place, through a particular Jewish girl, it happened. And then a brief prayer. Lord, what a path lay ahead for you because we happened. Humanity has an ugly history, so do I. In wonder we search the record, sift the reliable facts, and find you there, the world's redeemer and mind, compassionate, glorious, and also real. Amen. So part of what's on my mind is just, <clears throat> what I like to bring to this, as I've said before, is just the communication side. So it's one thing to have a grasp on the evidence, and the apologetic evidence in particular, is something else then to communicate it. How do you communicate that? How do you make that make sense to people? And, and if you can, make it compelling, make it beautiful. I don't know. So there's our devotion. Yeah. I think one of the things that I'm taking away from this episode series, if you will, one mm -hmm. of the, the main ones is just the reliability of the New Testament. 
documents, specifically Luke, given his um, methodical world-class reporting on the, on the, right. on the matters. And I think we've, we've brought up a few of those things before, and I don't want to steal too much from what we might say in the next, the next episode where we really dive into that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But that is one of the things that I think is very useful to fall back on, especially if you have a few of those nuggets to share in conversation that might be completely, you know, whoever you're speaking with might be oblivious to, um, mm-hmm. that would give them some new things to be like, you know what, maybe like, here's, I'll, I'll read some of what you're you know, presenting some of the thoughts, maybe an article or, excuse me, like a philosopher or uh, like I just, I had a friend I was in a conversation with you, he had me <coughs> uh, review Zizek, uh, I think is how you say it, some Czechoslovakian, mm-hmm. very interesting, very strange, uh, but not completely, I mean, a lot of some things I agreed with. So I'll read that and then I turn around and say like, maybe, maybe here's something that you could read on the same and I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that. And then it just helps point things uh, back towards the thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, we'll get into the 30,000 ancient witnesses to the New Testament and so on. It's just phenomenal. It, it's just crazy. And, and the point, I guess, is that there's just nothing for you and I to be afraid of in having that conversation. There's no evidence that's going to stun us and catch us off guard. And it's just how to combat all the all the misinformation from people that um, are not taking this book nearly seriously enough. So good for now. Yeah. Um, so with that edifying, I suppose, um, we have three topics, which, which is first we've got, there's no such thing as truth. There's a charge of intolerance for Christians. And then there's what? Um, uh, science, science has, question, science, science discredits yeah. Christianity outright. Maybe we start with, uh, the last one on the list here, which is the one about intolerance. Okay. And then the next two, I think there's there's no such thing as truth and science discrediting Christianity. I think uh, there's a little bit of overlap there, uh, similar to the way that, you know, suffering um, in the world and a loving God not being able to send people to hell are have a little bit of overlap as well. So maybe that's what we, we wrap up with there. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, what do you have to say about intolerance? I mean, I can maybe just set this up in a... In a simple way. Um, A book by Philip Yancey called Vanishing Grace starts with the statistics about how a positive view of the church has just fallen off a cliff in this last decade or so. How many people have a positive view of the church from the outside? Um, In ancient Jerusalem, there was a lot of people that saw something very special going on among Christians, and um, that was part of the attraction. But uh, Yancey points out that that number is just, I don't know, 5%? I forget the exact actual number. It's the question of asking the person on the street, what do you think of when you hear the word evangelical? And the answers will just take your breath away. Um, bigoted, intolerant, hateful, and so on. And so I was just talking to my students yesterday about this. This is huge. This is really significant stuff for, for us each to think through how we meet that. And so... I'll let you take first crack. That just sets it up a little bit. Yeah, I think, so I don't encounter this argument too much. Mm. Usually it's in passing, but one of the things that I've started to do is uh, recognize that the the Lutheranism, you know, our synod, I think, is is special and that we 
are very dissimilar to a lot of the, you know, common Christians or, you know, what people think about what it means to be a Christian versus what I believe it means to be a Christian are very different. And so I can start to, um, point to scripture as the, you know, this is the core of what we are, not all of these other things that you might see. In fact, a lot of the Christians that you know of, or the things that you know Christians to be, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. And so I can start to differentiate myself there. Um, Another thing is recognizing that there have been very terrible things done in the name of Christianity and to not discredit those, but also to separate myself myself from them. You know, whether it's someone about crusades or, you know, the Catholic Church and um, their reputation with uh, the youth and any any sort of thing that's there. Oftentimes, the, the qualms that someone has with Christians or Christianity, I also take issue with. And so I can start to mm-hmm. maybe even use that as a way to find common ground. Right. Um, but very quickly then turning towards, I think, some of these other issues. So that's, that's usually how I've approached it, uh, at least thus far. I think that's excellent. Yeah, so, um, so the same book by Yancey, Vanishing Grace, has this story at the front of it. <clears throat> There's a film festival, and these guys have made this film that was just um, derisive of Christianity, just dismissive and, and um, held, holding it in total contempt and mocking and so on. And so they show this film, and the, the writer and director get up and talk about the film in front of this live audience at some film festival. And a guy put his hand up and said, just you know, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and he writes that the air kind of went out of the room. But what the man said was, whatever the church has done to you, I just want to say I'm sorry. Whatever the church has done to you. So your point about not feeling we're in a position to be defensive or to deny um, that the church has ever, that Christians have ever been nasty and so on. But I told that story to a friend of mine as a positive story. And um, <clears throat> he he suddenly got kind of emotional and he said, he just said, that's too easy. Have I told the story before, John? Maybe I No, I, okay. I don't recall that one. My friend just said, that's too easy. And he said, I apologize for me. And in that case, it was, the issue was, who had, who has heard me? He said, mocking homosexuals. Who has heard me making that a big joke? And he talked, was talking about back in college and so on. And I mean, he's, he's emotional and it's just it's too easy to apologize for other people. So I think a really genuine disarming approach would be to say, look, I'm sure I have failed to represent to you who Jesus is and the depth of his love for you. And for that, I can't apologize. And it's, it's a more difficult apology if you're really thinking about what you're saying. I think it's a disarming answer. And I think what, what I hear built into your answer is just don't be that, you know, break the stereotype, explode the stereotype, overwhelm them with kindness. Yeah. Um, and I think that also brings to light another thing, which is, you know, we are still sinful humans living in a sinful world. We're not immune. Just because we're Christian does not mean that we're perfect, more righteous, any of that. And so that also gives another opportunity just to point to the cross where it's like, even people who are devout Christians fall, even people who are devout Christians fail to bridge that gap between, you know, an imperfect world and a perfect God. And that makes what we believe all the more important too. And so then you can kind of use that as a, you know, 
a true witness of your faith, which is mm-hmm. like, it's, it, and that it's one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. It's one of the things that I'm like grateful to have Christianity for is because I fail like this. And spot so on. Spot that, on. It, yep. it gives a perfect, um, yeah, it is disarming. We call it way. the road to Oxford. Um, <clears throat> just the road to our true subject. And I think that's the perfect one. This is what the whole point is. What the whole point is, is that we have failed. And it's a very opposite response from being defensive about it. So that's good. I, so a biblical warrant, we're not just trying to be all sweet and nice. Um, by the way, I saw some research that was comparing my generation, which was the David Letterman generation, whose wit could be acerbic and cutting and not afraid to just knock people down with the Jimmy Fallon comedy, which is, maybe it's changed, I don't know if it's changed, but, but the point was that it was much more joyful and much less prone to just destroy. And that, that Jimmy Fallon more characterizes this generation where people really do react against intolerance. And, and there's some good things about that. There's a sweetness to that, that we're maybe, I don't know if this is true politically, but, but that there is that zeitgeist, that spirit of the age, which does at least try to be tolerant. Now, it might not define tolerance very well, which we would define as, I disagree with you, but I care about you. <clears throat> Disagreeing yeah. doesn't mean I can't confirm you as a human being. And, and that's the, the other point I was going to bring up was, and I think we mentioned this in a previous episode too, but one, one thing that you can do in this, in this situation is to be the most caring person in the room. Exactly. And to, to make that a you know, core part of like, that's what it means to, you know, live as Jesus did or to, you know, follow his example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So agreeing with me is not a condition for me to treat you warmly and I can still confirm you as a human being. And yeah, absolutely. And be the kindest person in the room and so on. Yeah. Um, and then in the same, mm-hmm. you know, on tolerance, I think the, sometimes I'll, I'll, you know, if, if the person is interested in the semantics type of conversation where it's like, well, what do you actually mean by tolerance? And then you can d- differentiate tolerance from acceptance. So sometimes that's a, a way to clarify what you mm-hmm. mean, where it's like, I'm not going to be like, I'm not your judge here, especially if the person is, you know, you know, they're speaking of, you believe that I'm living in sin right now. And then you can say, well, one, me too. And, and second, I'm not the one that is going to be, be your judge. There's mm-hmm. someone else who's there. Um, but just because that's the state that you're in and that's the state that I am doesn't mean that I still don't care about you. I don't, that doesn't mean I don't care about your eternal well-being. Mm-hmm. It, it, I still care about you as a human, as a friend. You, know, you, can, you can turn that there um, and say, just because I don't accept what you're doing as holy doesn't mean that I am not, I'm here to, you know, try to tear you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we owe people our love and we owe them clarity. We, we owe them those two things. So it is complicated because a person can, no matter how kind we are, can call it hate speech just because we're disagreeing. And so um, it can just be in love. We need to be clear what sin is and people just won't like that. So that remains possible too. Or it remains possible that they really have been abused in the name of Christ in a way that would offend you and I just as much. So a little bit of a biblical warrant for this 
Like Romans 12, there's other places for sure. Peter talking about gentleness and respect is in the context of being persecuted. So that's very interesting. Uh, Romans 12 has this phrase, love must be sincere. And the, the Greek is can't, can't be a hypocrite. So can't be just a mask you put. It has to be real. And then, and then the apostle goes through this whole list of applications in the church, you know, in the world. And here are some of the things he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So there's that. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Um, later on it says, um, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, it says to us, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So I'd like to think that if our cows were ever surrounded by activists protesting, things we stand for, that we would be the ones taking hot chocolate out to the, out to them in the cold and donuts and stuff. And I think that's absolutely what Scripture is telling us to do, to meet that sort of hostility when we do. And what I told, the last thing I told students was, bottom line, though, no matter how loving we are, I told my future pastor students that I think this might be a theme verse for you, for your ministry. Um, let us go, to, this is Hebrews, let us go to him, to Christ, outside the city gate and bear the disgrace he bore. And so no matter how loving we are, it still can be that we are hated because they hated Jesus first. And so, but I think that the, the uh, biblical prescription is a very, very clear one as far as meeting arrogance or hostility with something entirely different, not that it's easy. And if I ever don't do that, then that can be the thing I apologize for. And maybe surprise people on that level. You know what? I, I lost my cool there. Please forgive me. You didn't deserve that. Because the the performative contradiction is the academic word for I say this is all about how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. But if you're not getting that from me as we talk, that's the performative, performative contradiction. So none of this is easy, but uh, we do have some clear directions for sure. Yeah, I think the... Well, Everyone make sure you get your bingo cards out. But uh, I think the the disarming nature of this is the very much related to indirectness where you're mm. anticipating, you know, if, especially if someone is bringing this defeater to you, where they are pointing at this as, you know, this is ammunition for their argument that, you know, Christians are just terrible people. You can undermine that by meeting it with you know, hot chocolate and a smile or whatever, <laughs> it el- whatever else we have exactly there. And that, that kind of, sneaks in the back door of, well, you know, that you have a different uh, way into the conversation Mm -hmm. now that also is much more productive because it usually outright attacks like that, whether they're warranted or not, usually aren't as effective as ones that are, Mm -hmm. um, come from a more, uh, a place that's more, uh, has a little more equanimity. Yeah. Very good. So I don't, I want to be careful not getting too personal um, just, just this much I'll say, you know, my brought, my daughter brought into our family, a wonderful young man from a very different worldview and he's Christian now unreservedly and it's a beautiful story, but this was the kind of the dilemma at the Palshin house was here's this kid that was loving. And when he hugs you, you've been hugged. My goodness, you know, you've been hugged. But the question was, while he was not a Christian, is it sending the wrong message to receive him? Or 
would it be better to kind of hold him at arm's length because he isn't a believer? And we're worried about where this might go in our family. And, and <clears throat> I always felt like we gain nothing by being cold. There's nothing we gain by holding him off at arm's length. And the more it became apparent, this young man might be in our family forever, um, the more it was clear, that's not what we're going to do here. And um, it just took us a while in our, in our house to come to that conclusion. You know, um, so I think it's, it's just err on the side, especially my friend, the same friend just said to me, now is maybe the day, just look around culture, maybe now is the day, if you're going to err on any side, maybe you would err on, on how loving you are. And, and just surprise people with that. He was on a radio broadcast and talking about hot button issues and people were calling in just saying, I didn't know Christians could take this posture that you say over and over that you love us, that you actually care what happens to us. And that's not going to break through for everybody. But the fact that that all by itself is such a surprise to people. Um, and with that, I just say, you know, I just can't, I've said it before, I just can't take any other view than Jesus took. And, and if you could take it from him, maybe, read yeah. your New Testament, and let's, let's talk, and I promise, it'll be non-defensive. It'll be very interesting and worthwhile. Um, so. mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I wonder, I've never been in that close of a situation mm-hmm. where I'm bringing someone into the, a, a very Christian fold, and they are decidedly not so. Um, so I can I can't imagine the the dissonance that's there where or the the caution, but hmm. as you said, I think the what is the worst outcome of accepting someone as Christ did, or you know embracing them with open arms, welcoming the you know say a prodigal son to back to the back home, something hmm. to this sort where you know the state of this person is not agreeance with my faith, but I'm still going to take them in. What, what's the worst thing that happens here? Sure. <clears throat> All the more I'm going to take them in. And this came up in the same class. I'm glad you said that, that. Just thinking about how is Jesus responding to people. If you want to see Jesus show the angry side, it's going to probably be because of self-righteousness. That's going to be the issue that gets him hot and bothered. And so that's just really interesting to think about how he dines with tax collectors and sinners, not the, to, not to leave them there. Not to leave them there, but he associates yeah. the intimacy of meal fellowship back in, in the ancient day. But boy, self-righteousness, Pharisees think they're better. Oh, watch out. He's going to tell a story that's going to tear you to your knees, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, and I can only imagine it's more so back in, in the setting where Jesus was living and breathing, but what a radical kind of love mm-hmm. that is to show to someone. <clears throat> it's scandalous. And, scandalous. And that, uh, yeah, that touches on another, I mean, to bring in a little bit of the communication again, I think we've even used this as an example before where uh, maybe it was even one of the first episodes we did, but expectation violation yeah, theory. That was the first where, one. Yeah. Where a lot of, um, a lot of it, the things that Jesus did while he, while he was living and breathing in Jerusalem and in Israel at that time, you know, you, you can view a lot of those things through the lens of this is a juxtaposition. This isn't what someone would usually do. This is a, uh, it, it violates all the expectations that they had culturally. And so, um, and it does so in a, 
very loving way. Mm-hmm. And that theory, you know, we talked about how that's really a nonverbal communication theory, and it fits. What are you saying by sitting at that table with, with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners? What are you saying just by being at the table? And it's profound, and it is exactly what you say. No one saw that coming. And the Son of God lands in the earth, that that's what he's going to do, and that's who he's going to be. So, again, I, actually, I like what we're talking about because this, this is in our sweet spot of communication all the way. How, how do we talk to these people? What do we owe to them? So, that's all I've Very got. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, my doorbell just rang. So, <laughs> I don't know if you could hear that in the, I did. In the background. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I have a, a package. My dog's a little... A dog gets exciting. nervous when, <laughs> when new people are around in his, mm. in his home. When we're outside, it's fine. But when we're in here, it's... He's not protective, like aggressively. He just gets, he's like, he'll, he'll sometimes be shaking, like nervously, like what's going to happen. So I don't know. <laughs> a little bit of a tangent. No, it's, um, I, I saw a really funny uh, YouTube video yesterday. We have a dog, a grand dog, and we love this little guy mm, named Charlie. Mm-hmm. He's a, yeah. he's a corgi and all of that. This video is this funny old guy who's got a chihuahua in his, in his hand. And he, and he just says, <laughs> What do I do to relax? He says, oh, well, I do what a lot of people do. I come home and I, and I pet my dog. And then he puts his dog. hand toward the dog. <laughs> <laughs> it is really funny. That's the... Like, ow, ow. <laughs> yeah. That's what I don't understand about little dogs. Oh, is what's the attraction? The really, really small ones is what do you think is going to happen if we both go all out? You know? <laughs> what? what? Yeah. Oh, it's very funny. It's, so. it's very funny. Uh, sometimes a little annoying if if it's like the, <laughs> the next door neighbor. A lot of the, well, actually a lot of the dogs in our complex are like this, very hostile towards towards everyone, but also harmless. So right. it's fine. <laughs> no, our our grand puppy loves to be cuddled and stuff, but every now and then he goes to that place where he just wants to rather rather play and play hard, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so funny. When when he gets there, you can't calm him down. That's the issue. Yeah. We're, we're, we're there now for the... <laughs> Mm-hmm. For the duration, anyway, uh, we have two other topics. Are we finished with that one? Yeah, I think I don't. I don't really have too much else. Too much I mean, else on that, yeah. other than just you know, what is the recognizing that we also are sinful, and then just being as radically loving as Christ is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you said, anything that creates an opportunity to explain what this is really all about, and such a natural one, such a natural one, and so... Because I can see that would be the danger of of saying, you know, Jesus dined with tax collectors and sinners is uh, people might conflate that with condoning those types of actions versus what it actually was, which was, Mm -hmm. I'm, you know we can't build the bridge towards God. He did that for us. And, mm-hmm. and how, how else could we act than to also show that that bridge is already built for other mm-hmm. people too? Son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's not the healthy need a doctor, it's the sick. And so it's the hound of heaven come, come for us. So you're right, there, that danger exists that we don't only owe people love, but also clarity, as we said before. So, truth or science? Um, which one do you want to? I think let's uh, let's start with truth. Okay. This one's a little bit 
philosophical. There's no such thing as truth, capital T truth, objective truth. This is one that I do encounter more often. Maybe it's just, I think the the handful of friends I have are usually have that type of, you know, very philosophical type of proclivity where we can talk about, you know, anything at length for any amount of time uh, at any time into the wee hours of the morning. But this is also one that I still struggle with because when you get into that area where it does become a more philosophical type of defeater, you're farther away from, you know, the North star of the cross. And then, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the, that's what I find is the, the most difficult thing is like, you're, you're in a world of philosophy now, not in the world of Christianity, like the previous thing we were talking about, not like a loving God could not send someone to hell or, you know, too much suffer, suffering in the world for a benevolent God to exist. Like all of those things, you're still somewhat in the realm of, of Christianity, whereas this is a, uh, much farther away. And so how do you get back? That's, that's what I usually find myself struggling with. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I never want to try to out-biologize the biologists. I got to know when I don't know what I'm talking about. Out-philosophize the philosophers. I, I don't want to do that. Um, I think we can witness to Christ and put a stone in the shoe without crossing that line um, and then go do our homework and, you know, continue to grow. So what I encounter is... Um, as often as not what someone is called the shallow postmodern who says there's no such thing as truth and that really is all they have to say about it. They heard that at the university and everybody nodded their heads, I suppose. And, and so their knowledge of what that means goes only skin deep and never really want to do the gotcha with people. I mean, the gotcha is, is what you're saying true? There's no such thing as truth. Is that a true statement? Because it does sort of fall apart for, I think, a lot of people, but not everybody. I think what the smart people are saying, like Foucault and Derrida and other postmodern philosophers, is a little bit different. What they're saying is that reality is meaningless, totally meaningless, meaningless chaos. And so that every truth system is really imposing something on top of what is actually chaos. And so if that's what it is, then whatever floats your boat, you know, if this gets you through the night, fine, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. I think it probably is still true. Now, again, I wouldn't take these brilliant people on (laughs) if I had the chance to. But I think it still is a truth claim. So there still is something sort of self-defeating about it because what you're saying is still a thing you're asserting as true. Yeah. But I'm just, what I'm suggesting is educated people are not going to go running for the hills just because you said, you know, that little gotcha, gotcha line. Yeah, it's never... um... And even that is like, okay, great. You won that battle. Now what? And so, and you're still stuck in a place that's far away from where you actually want to be when you're considering communicating apologetics. I think the, a similar argument to the, um, the one that you were just elaborating on is, uh, and the one that I, I come across is usually more centered around subjectivity as the, like the core of why nothing is objectively true is because all of us have, you know, different eyes different ears, different senses that we're able to engage with the world in. And so thus no one's experience is exactly the same. And thus, how can you have commonality between these things? And Mm so, and then you take that, they take that very, very, very deep down towards the, you know, semantic understanding of what different words mean. And 
I think at that point it still falls apart, but it's not as, uh, there's no gotcha there. There's right. no, um, you know, you can run any number of tests and confirm that, yep, everyone sees red as red. Um, if you call it that, maybe someone doesn't call it that. And so semantically, yes, it's possible, but there are a lot of things that point towards objective reality. And so you can, you know, you, you wind up in a, it, it doesn't really amount to anything because then you can't, you get to places where, well, you can't really prove that that's true, but you can allude to it. And so you get into a place where no one can actually say anything definitively because to make that kind of statement, as you said, is self-defeating, but also um, it's very hard to be on the uh, assertive argument or the affirmative stance on, on either side. And so both, both sides require a negative argument to be, you know, here we mm-hmm. are, like I won the argument. <clears throat> right. it's in, so when you make, when you make people uh, assume that stance, you can, that's what I've sometimes done is said, like, both of us can take a negative argument for as long as we want, but affirmatively, there's not enough to say something conclusively scientifically that this is a, or, you know, even philosophically or, uh, is it epistemologically mm-hmm. maybe is the word I'm not, you can't, you really run into a place where, I mean, philosophers still debating what knowledge is. So and they've been talking about that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And I don't think there will ever be a conclusive, this is exactly what it is. And so you can make arguments about how there's uncertainty when you bring language into the fold. But again, even now, I'm, I feel like I'm just rambling about stuff that mm-hmm. doesn't matter. It's just, it's just all of it. I'm, I, the, the real thing I'm looking for is where in the conversation can I not ignore but recognize and then also have an avenue towards the cross. Because mm-hmm. Christ doesn't speak philosophically about knowledge. And well, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. It's not as clear um, that this is what he elaborates on. And so he can, if, if there are ways where I can connect it to, to Christ, maybe that's what I should do as my homework is find the mm-hmm. times where Christ is speaking on a more philosophical level. And then maybe use that as a bridge towards something. But again, the philosophy isn't the point of it. The I I just read a or watched a you know read a summary basically, or a, you know it was a video essay about Zizek, Z I Z E K. I think is a Czech philosopher I alluded to earlier in this episode. I listened to this essay, and I think it was on his book called Christ is Monstrous, which is a very, you know, aggressive title towards something. But Mm. the main argument of the book was that Christ really is God and what that means for philosophy. And so I was able to find common ground in that, you know, Christ is God is necessary. And that's a core component. That is one of the pillars of my faith. If that isn't true, then everything that I believe is all for naught. In the mm-hmm. same way that there many other things are, like Christ really rose from the dead and and all of these other things. But in terms of of that, that's what he means by Christ is monstrous, is he really is God in human form. And then the second half of it was all about what that meant for philosophy, about, you know, 
ontological completeness or incompleteness and all sorts of twisty, windy things where you can make connections here and there and you can make a nuanced, interesting argument towards something. But in the end, all of that kind of just fizzles into not really much in my mind. And so my response was, you know, I gave my pages and pages of notes on this and where I agree or like, you know, the idea that God is frightening isn't foreign to me. I mean, just read Ezekiel at the beginning and it's like, I can't imagine being there. And, but the response was, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on first Corinthians where we're talking about, you know, the wisdom of mankind is foolish, a stumbling block. And, and so I'm curious to hear the response there. And so maybe that's, that's the avenue, but I'm always looking for, how do I get out of this territory? Because this isn't the territory of apologetics. This is the territory of an ivory tower somewhere. Mm. Sometimes what I fall back on is that <clears throat> what we have going for us is the natural knowledge of God that may sleep deeper in the postmodern mind, but is still there in a way that we can count on it. In other words, that people are actively suppressing the truth that comes through the voice of conscience, that comes through the wonder of creation. Um, several famous atheists turned Christian, Christian have looked back and said, I had reasons for my atheism. I had reasons for not wanting there to be God. So that they just preferred the meaninglessness because, because the postmodern thing makes no demands on a person. And it doesn't confront you with you either. And so i got to kind of count on that, that, there still is this thing called the natural knowledge of God, because otherwise it's just so frustrating. Maybe I've said this before, but you don't know you have presuppositions until you meet someone who doesn't share them, and then you you can very quickly find yourself at that same kind of impasse. You know, um, sometimes my approach has been there's a there's a book by Ravi Zacharias, Can Man Live Without God? I just saw a discussion on Facebook of should we keep quoting Ravi Zacharias now that we know after he died, what kind of a man he was. Um, but I still think, I disagree, and I think his ideas um, still stand up in spite of his credibility not standing up. It's just a tragic story. But it's a, so what I'm saying is, it's a worthwhile book, Can Man Live Without God? And it, it kind of takes the tack of, okay, you can say there's no such thing as truth, but do you understand the bleakness of what you're saying? It can be really like Nietzsche walked that path to the end and seeing without truth, there's also no beauty and there's also no hope and there's also no meaning and you, and so on. And you can say you're okay with all of that, but have you really thought it through that the, the world as you were describing it? Um, so it's not, it's a different kind of reasoning. Um, Is it worth uh, elaborating a little bit more about that author and his backstory? Cause it's, it's one I'm unfamiliar with, but it might be good, you know, if other people in my shoes wanted to also use this in a, in a conversation, maybe is it worth going into a little bit and knowing what the, <clears throat> it sounds like the controversy or, or something came out after he died. And is that worth yeah. knowing going into talking about sure. this? He was, this he was one of the most famous Christian apologists. He, he is, I think, Pakistani or Indian by ethnicity and just a, a top-shelf philosopher, able to argue at the highest level about these things. Very, very quotable. And um, again, Can Man Live Without God is just a super worthwhile book because it goes through those issues of meaning and morality and hope and all the things that go with truth. 
Um, so that that's the question, is when he died, I forget what it was in particular, but it turns out he had just been living a double life. And, you know, when that happens, that's just devastating to believers who maybe rightfully or wrongly kind of lean their faith on on this wonderful man who wasn't wonderful, as it turns out. So, But, you know, I just can't not quote him because he he, cat, he captures certain things. Like, he, tell, he tells a story. He's touring, I think it's called the Wexler Building. I forget exactly. Some, some museum in Ohio that was a monument to postmodernism. And so there's stairways that go nowhere. There's pillars that don't come all the way to the ground. There's doorways in the ceiling, just all this kind of meaningless stuff. As a pillar to the notion we should question all the absolutes. Um, but he said, taking the tour, all I had to do was ask one question, and that question was, did they do the same thing with the foundation? In other words, did they actually ignore the laws of physics and so on when they built this building, or isn't there a reality there that, that um, they had to honor? And, and obviously there was. And so the question that comes out of that can be, of, of several, can be, does anybody really live this way? Does anybody really live this way? As if there's nothing you can ever know. And um, so this is me being careful not to, again, talk beyond what I know. I'm not a philosopher. But, but I like that kind of stone in the shoe for the shallow postmodern, for the person who, who really hasn't even begun to think through what they're saying. Do you really live that way? Um, and so as, uh, as Philip Yancey gets into questions like, to get to the bleakness, so where was the Holocaust invented? You think the Holocaust was invented in some dark basement in a, you know, basement of whatever, some slums in the inner city, and that's where they invented, no, no, he says, famous quote is, in the well-lit lecture halls of the German philosophers is where that was invented. And it was... It was kind of the point, I guess, is to move from there to what you were saying. It's just testimony. And my favorite road to Oxford is Jesus before Pilate. Pilate says, what is truth? It's just such a modern ring to that. And Jesus says, everybody on the side of truth listens to me. So I take that to mean, Pilate, if you really wanted to know, it's standing right in front of you. So the truth is a person, capital T truth is a person, uh, is, what, is what Jesus embodied. And, and it's just, sometimes it's just like I said before you, life and death. I just, I set before you the real alternatives here between what I call the bleakness and the promise of joy and life beyond, beyond imagining that is actually rooted in history. This is not pie in the sky, but we've talked about resurrection and we'll come back to the New Testament and so on. So testimony, it's a testimony to Jesus is the truth. And I I can offer yeah. clues, but not proofs, so to speak, but clues, mm-hmm. reasons to take him seriously and his truth claims. Yeah, it's hard to, I think you've alluded to it before. It's like you're you're on the inside. You can see the beautiful picture and the painting in the hall, and you're trying to communicate it to someone who's not in the same place and just doesn't have the same weight out there. And, you know, likewise, someone could say the same about my understanding of like, I'm not an adherent to, you know, unending subjectivity and what that, Mm -hmm. you know, the bleak world that that lives in. I think the, 
I really liked the you know, the observation that uh, did they do that to the foundation too? Mm-hmm. It's like at some point there are commonalities and things that you can't ignore. They're non-negotiables. That, uh, yeah. yeah. That uh, and. I can see if I had brought, if I bring that up in a conversation, it probably just goes around in more circles, Mm -hmm. but it is still a beautiful way to, you know, from the inside, looking at the picture, I deny the foundation too, and see what happens. Yeah. And and to go there. I I remember the phrase somewhere, the fish fights hardest close to the boat. And so it's like, just the fact that people are batting things away. I get that. We're not about winning arguments, you know. But you still may have left them with something. Can yeah. I really live this way? Do I mm-hmm. really live this way? How much yeah. sense does it make? Because that's not the that's not the thing that brings them to the cross. Right. But it does maybe plant a seed of. Well, maybe I didn't think this all the way through, or maybe there's more to think about, or maybe there's something else that I haven't considered yet that you can leave with someone, and that's mm-hmm. what I try to share. Is like, I I want to show you what it's like to live in faith. And and to demonstrate as much as I can what that means, at least to me, here. And I want you to experience that too. And then it's a, what a beautiful tapestry we have in front of us. It's all woven together. And mm-hmm. and it's all coming together uh, for us, even. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, uh, that's kind of where that one leads. The other thing that I thought was interesting is just the idea of people who, say, have a double life or... Um, someone who would to the, it would just be such a tragic story if, if this person person turned out to be someone who they, who, who they weren't uh, presenting themselves as. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one of my favorite uh, composers, I think Rafe Vaughn Williams, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong one, but was made some of the most beautiful Christian songs that I've ever heard. And it turns out he was an atheist or, you know, didn't believe or was agnostic or something. And so, I don't think that it's impossible for beauty to come from the, you know, people that weren't Christians either. Mm-hmm. Again, like when I truly believe that God works for the good of those who love him, how can I not find that, you know, even the people who don't believe in him uh, contribute <laughs> in, in meaningful ways? How right. could I not? So, yeah, I, the ideas stand or they don't. The beauty, the beauty is beauty or it's not. And it is kind of a. I had a student who was really distraught over this. Just could I ever read this man again? And so that's that's the reality. So you really do harm. You can really do harm by being a hypocrite. But um, yeah, yeah. So good to be cautious as always. But the yeah, I think the. Uh, like I, I hear the song in my head and it's, mm-hmm. wow, what a great way to like, to, to use those chords in that way to elicit that meaning and, mm-hmm. and to, to share faith in that way or to share this doctrine in this specific way. And it's, uh, that stands on its own. Mm-hmm. So, but also good to be cautious too, that you can, you can recognize the beauty in those things without 
condoning all the actions that this author ever took too. So, uh, so you can, you can make distinctions there. And if people are held to that thing, then who could hold anyone on a pedestal of any kind, or who could look at the works of any person or the art or Mm -hmm. books or words or whatever it might be and actually put them in that place without Mm -hmm. recognizing that all of us fail in that way. Just maybe some, not to that extent, but it doesn't matter in the eyes of God. There was an ancient controversy somewhat related, which was if a pastor has a moral failing, then did his baptisms count? So are you baptized if you were baptized by so-and-so who turned out to be a schmuck? (laughs) And the church worked through that. and, And key in that was the parable of the wheat and the wheats where Jesus says to those who say, should we look for the weeds and pull them up? And he just, <laughs> no, we'll do that in the end because you're going to screw it up if you start looking for hypocrites. You're going you're gonna to get it wrong. And so that's somewhat related that, you know, um, so the truth this man taught is true. Yeah. Even if it's a shame to think of how his life wasn't married to it. If I have that right. I don't know if that's yeah. at all being too hard on him or not. but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we could get into meaning as well. Just because it's related with no truth, there's no mm-hmm. wonder, beauty, there's no meaning. Um, and it's a hard one because you can find yourself talking past a person because they're saying, what do you mean life isn't meaningful? I'm enjoying this cup of coffee from Starbucks. I find this meaningful. And so it's, it's really defin- definitions that are at issue. By meaning, you mean something subjective. And by meaning, I mean a reality bigger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, Christ saying your life means something to me and this is the ultimate person and I'm, I'm not it's not okay with me yeah, the, thing, yeah. the things I find meaningful I'm going to lose them forever my children I'd say this is not okay with me but the fact that yeah. people can really not know what we mean by mm-hmm. by the notion that there isn't really objective meaning apart from God um, yeah. but I think that's a that's a wonderful point of contact and that's a what you, Ecclesiastes. What, what's meaningful yes. to you and why and what will you do when that's taken away and so on? Mm-hmm. Is, this is the, the theme of Ecclesiastes, yes? It, <laughs> surrounding this idea of meaning or meaninglessness and how does it all come together? I just heard in the a end. video of someone saying that. It was a beautiful testimony from a former alcoholic, but his testimony was reading Ecclesiastes and saying, this is in the Bible? This is in the Bible, and just saying it's it's all true. These things I chase after for meaning, that they are meaningless, until the last chapter says, "Remember your Creator." Before the yeah, silver the, cord is cut, that before your soul is cut from your body. Yeah. So I interesting remember, point of it, contact. Is it uh, fear the Lord and keep His commandments? Is the final you know at what happens at the end? I'm trying yeah, to, that's where the, trying that's to where pull, the, it, pull it up and live here. where the, the vertical dimension comes in, for sure. Ecclesiastes is a book that has that one hint of the vertical, but mostly it's a book that chases you to Christ, that makes Christ necessary, and you find that in other parts of the Scripture. But mm-hmm. just, again, that point of contact with, man, the things you try to chase after. Um, so it's, it's like if I root my meaning in things in this world, well, everything's going to crash and burn eventually. And what is that going to do to me? Um, whereas if I root my meaning in something beyond this world, in Christ and his word, then when, that, then when this world crashes and burns, it will only tend to chase me toward those resources that I have that are 
that are yeah. not touched in this world. And so the point of contact is just what do you live for and what what's your treasure? What's your heart's treasure? How's that gonna go? The day it almost feels away. a little it almost feels a little like the hound of heaven mm-hmm. getting chased towards uh at the how do you exit that loop? Here it is. Mm-hmm. You you ran away you can run away as much as you want, but at the mm-hmm. you know there will be no atheists in hell. Right. <clears throat> and I think part of the difficulty with this particular issue is again definitions and so I think we can no longer assume that people are out there consciously hungering for transcendence. Call it a second floor, upper upper story of meaning that comes from above. And that we can come along as the Christian and name the thing they've been consciously hungering for. Um, I I think nowadays people, we've transitioned to becoming more and more a truly secular culture where people really think that they can have meaning in, in an imminent frame in the here and now, and that it, it's going to be a more difficult conversation to, again, starting perhaps with definitions, to say we're talking about two different things. I'm not talking about yeah. merely a feeling, a subjective feeling. We can't be as much like Paul in Athens anymore, saying, here's the the name of the nameless God. Right. Is it Paul in Athens? Or yeah, Paul, read the, Paul read, it, the, read the Times and spoke brilliantly to them. Yeah, and and We so have to do the, the same thing. There's a different idol in place in our in our society, and so being able to, it is harder now to mm-hmm. when when people are convinced that they can find meaning and they or they can, you know, achieve all of those things. Essentially, you know, I'll be good enough for for you know if there is a God, He would let me in, and I don't need to worry about anything else. And, and you can chase all of these these things mm-hmm. uh, yep. as far as you want. It's uh, maybe it's more akin to pointing out the bleakness of where that ends, as you said before, right. where that becomes the, you know, you can say, is that true? Sure. And then you will never be able to, it will always just continue another question and it will keep going and going until uh, eventually, yeah, you do confront all of those things that are quite bleak. Mm. Yeah, so you can have a posture at a certain age in life of, yeah, no meaning, love it, awesome, <laughs> no truth, great, wonderful. But it can turn out to be just a posture, hopefully it does, when yeah. ex- existential things swing swing closer for you and death is coming and what does it all mean becomes um, no longer quite so comfortable, you know? Yeah. I remember and you, I, I should go, say go before, uh, just to continue off the, the last thought I had is that that is not the end of the conversation, which is why I think this is one of the more difficult defeaters to have is because it is not grounded in something that, you know, it, there's not an easy path towards the, the Christian apologetic conversation. Right. Um, and you're, you're in a, you're in foreign territory. And so it's, it's like you can leave people with questions there, but then Eventually, now let's come, like, when I take this train of thought, you can show something like Ecclesiastes. You can show something else that paves the way towards, you know, as Jesus said in the, to Pilate, the, you know, I love how he doesn't answer the question. He answers the question that he should have asked mm-hmm. type of type of thing is the <laughs> clever little, Yeah, uh, I always appreciated that. I thought it was have, have, somewhat even funny a little <clears throat> bit, but um, the... Uh, yeah, the people who 
know the truth, listen to me. Have we talked about prophetic irony? I forget. I this is, don't think we've talked about it there, but I do remember that there was a little bit of that in your dissertation, if okay. I'm not mistaken, with the so, idols and the. Apologize to every listener, yeah. all three of you. I just I teach this stuff, and I can't <laughs> ever know what I said online or not. Um, so, a prophetic irony it fits here, though it is. The prophets would just simply say, "Thus says the Lord," and they wouldn't ground the truth in any kind of, you know, epistemology, any kind of. Not in their own powers of reason. They would just, this, thus says the Lord. And if you disagree with the prophet, they'll say, you're sinning because thus says the Lord. And what's ironic about it is every other truth system is basically grounding truth as if they can and, and free themselves up from all presupposition. But the prophets just refuse to do that. And so this is the word of God and God can't offer you anything firmer than himself swearing by his own name. What, what more can he give you that is more solid than that? It may sound circular, but it's, it's unique in that regard. Um, and so what I would say to what you're saying is that um, to not be talked out of the power of simple witness, of, of simple apostle-style testimony, that, and if it feels, I think I might have said, like a weak thing, feels like a weak thing not to ground all this stuff in my powers of reason, my wonderful powers of reason. Um, it is that the power of Christ can rest on my testimony and on um, the apparent nothingness of the gospel. Keyword apparent is not nothing, but the nothingness of the man. And so to, to just bang my head against the wall looking for what is the proof? What is the slam dunk? What's the silver bullet argument? And to miss an opportunity to simply testify, look, what is truth Pilate says and Jesus says, everybody in the sight of truth listens to me. And that's testimony. That's, that's simply testimony. Um, yeah. I think the, maybe this will help seg- segue us into the last, the last one, sure. which does have a lot of similarities. But uh, I take the scientific method, which is you, you form a hypothesis and then you're, you, you kind of use that as like temporarily, I'm going to just kind of, this is going to be truth. And then you're going to test it over and over again. Mm -hmm. And you try like in, maybe that's a poor way of of describing it, but that's how, especially like when you take that philosophically, which is usually how I'm encountering it these days. It's like the, the hypothesis is that everything is deterministic or that there is no truth or that there is no, um, you know, everything, the hypothesis is everything is subjective. And then the entire line of questioning goes on presuming that without actually needing to like, you know, you're trying to work towards a grounding, but as we've established, it kind of just winds up in continual questions and you it's, it's, there's no way to bring that to a, you know, a resolution. Um, in the same way, you can say that the hypothesis is that there is an eternal almighty God that loves you. And then if you start asking questions in that way, it kind of paints a different picture and maybe Maybe that's a, there's a weak analogy to faith there where you're, you know, that's what belief is. Is like, I believe that this hypothesis is true. And then what does that mean? Now you can start to have a way towards, towards witness. Not that those things are equivalent, but mm-hmm. um, just as a, maybe a way to frame it slightly so that you can have an avenue back there. But also uh, it was a 
an attempt at a segue into our last topic, unless we have more to say on on truth. No, this is good. Let's uh, let's get to science. And again, we're not. You're more of a scientist type than I am, but I'm not a scientist, so for I can, for better or for worse, I can just think of, you know, partly just how do I how would I help a college student who is encountering the challenge from a scientific basis, and how do I help him or her not panic about all the not always bullying some. Scientists can be just wonderful people, obviously, um, but just in their self-confident denials of the whole biblical worldview, how do I help a person deal with that? Yeah. Um, I think mo- yeah, most of the science that I deal with are soft sciences now, more like communication. Right. We consider a soft science where you can have the you know, qualitative and quantitative approaches to it, whereas mm-hmm. hard sciences are almost entirely quantitative. Maybe that would be a good episode sometimes where we could Mm, steel man each approach. Not that I would have to admit, I find the qualitative side more, much more interesting. Um, Yeah, me too. But the, the quantitative side is for better or for worse, what I used in my, in my, uh, in my thesis, but uh, yeah. And, and proof that there are negatives to it. They changed the math when I was about to publish. So I would have to basically do all of the, <laughs> gather right. more data and, and test it in a different way. That was now the standard for, you know, proving mediation between two ideas or, or however. You know. I remember that issue. So qualitative believes in particularity. No one has ever lived the life you've lived or will ever live it again. And it honors the uniqueness of experience and Whereas quantitative is the opposite. If you can't measure it, stick it in a tube, whatever, it doesn't exist. And I want to go back to that since you bring it up is one of the issues I remember with John Vietz or Gene Vietz saying that his Christian worldview um, not only helped him survive the university with his faith intact, but was a supple kind of thinking that was every advantage. And that was one example of how Christian thinking can take in both those avenues to, you know, discovering truth by, by means of investigation, it was able to handle both and sort of not get locked in. Maybe you remember this. What I saw was a divide. People would just climb onto one mountain or the other. You're quant or you're qual, you know, which, which are you? And there's just no reason to pit them against each other. Yeah. So anyway. Especially in, you know, communication, the quant side is usually taking some sort of qualitative assessment about something and then just making that a stat on the paper that you can do the math with. Mm -hmm. So there's still elements of it everywhere there, which was my, uh, my little, uh, interest. (laughs) The part I thought most interesting about my research was in that area. Um, so, but yeah, to, to bring it back, I think, please. Well, did you, did you have something? No, bring it back. Go ahead. (laughs) Um, yeah, I I think, Being able to uh, handle both is um, is useful. I've I've said in the past that, especially in conversations like this, is I'm not. Uh, I welcome all of the arguments you have against Christianity. I'm not gonna, you know, you. I'm not gonna make this something that you can't talk about or challenge. I wouldn't want that. In fact, it probably is more helpful for me that you bring the argument up because it makes me. Follow through with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it does make me question something. I don't know. We'll find out. And and I know I have the scriptures to lean on. I have my faith to lean on. I have all of those. Those things are still there. None of this is 
is false by accepting an argument against any of these things, but then being able to take, you know, even just new scientific discoveries and, you know, have something like a hypothesis is like, would, what would it take to disprove what I believe? And there's nothing that comes close. And Mm so at least not yet, maybe there will be something that is more, but still that's, I'm grounded in my faith and what I believe and the way that I have been told how the world comes together and how, how limited my understanding of that is. That's what apologetics has done for me. When I first studied it, there was a season where it actually wasn't helping me as far as my confidence, but I worked through that. Uh, definitely worked through that. And, and now, um, it's just hard to imagine the non-existence of God or of Jesus because of just having kind of immersed in this world. And so, and to, to the point of just serene confidence, and I don't care what the argument is. Maybe it'll trouble me for a while, or I just won't have a clear answer for a while, but I, I live in serene confidence, and I feel really blessed yeah. that I'm there and have been here for quite, mm-hmm. a, quite a number of years. Um, and I think one of the, the things that you just said there is what really ties us back into this last defeater, which is, oh, what's the exact way it's phrased? Science has discredited Christianity, and then... Uh, your answer to that being, you know, looking at the world around you truly inquisitively and uh, recognizing that a lot of signs point towards that there is something else going on here that that put this all together. Mm-hmm. The the sheer unlikelihood of, no, like unfathomable likelihood that any of this wound up exactly in the conditions that it is today that facilitate life uh as that as one of the responses to uh science has discredited what right. i believe we'll, we'll come full circle to that that's an excellent point um we'll maybe deal with these two core issues resurrection new testament but then i got a list of like 20 positive arguments that can really just build us up and we'll include in that list these arguments for god's existence that are i overuse the word robust but they are robust the chances we beat is like how many electrons are there in the universe? One in that number are the odds that the universe beat by existing. And so it's crazy. You can, we said before, you can call that not proof. Sure, we beat the odds. Okay, so what? <laughs> okay, well, then call it a clue at least because, you know, so many things point that direction. So um, thinking not even as, so much as an apologist, but just, I don't know, I just want to help this young college student, let's say who maybe is disturbed by science. And one just real practical thing. Um, There's a book I have somewhere around here called In Six Days. And the subtitle is Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. And there's a companion book, I forget the title, has seven in it. And it's not that well written because they're scientists and not writers, but if it would just help you to know if you think that Everybody at the top of their field with PhDs and cosmology and biology and whatever all ridicule you and think that you are, are ridiculous. It just isn't the case. Um, these are people probably not credited. They don't have the chairs at the big universities because their opinions are so unpopular. But if you just think every people that think every person that thinks scientifically thinks thinks you are believing in nonsense, it just isn't true. And so that's, you know, it's, it's not the word of God. It's not law and gospel. It's not that kind of assurance, but, no, but that, just that to calm down, is, just calm is down. Really, it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it is assuring though, when you, especially when you're in a situation where overwhelmingly it seems that way, 
that all the people, all the scientists I'm surrounded with are, you know, coming at uh, sometimes very aggressively, you know, coming at you Mm -hmm. and your faith to know that that's not the, um, that's not the only way scientists think either. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I maybe have mentioned John Lennox, um, one of my favorite scientists. He's a mathematician who uh, knew Hawking's personally and... um, I think he's at Cambridge, wonderful British accent. To hear this man first speak brilliantly about these things and then to open-heartedly confess Jesus, it just does the heart good. So here's just a few points from him that I've found sort of useful, helpful. He just is clear um, about where the battle is. It's not religion versus science. It just isn't religion versus science. It really is theism versus secular materialism is where the battle is. Um, And these three short arguments he makes... I like the one where he says that um, you you got a car engine and you've got the laws of internal combustion and you've got Henry Ford as two different kinds of explanations that don't really compete with each other. They're just parallel explanations. And so the fact that we can now talk intelligently about the laws of internal combustion does not negate that it's Henry Ford that you know we are confronting with the reality of the engine. And Matilda makes a cake, and you can study it in the laboratory and say every single thing about that cake, except why she baked it. And for that, you're going to need to talk to Aunt Matilda. He just loves to say that. Same kind of thing. It's just science can make, he's good at this issue, of science can make these decrees, but scientists will often speak beyond their expertise, and now they're being theologians and philosophers, and they're bad at it. And so, but they can come with that aura of credibility. Um, but he just he said, you know, Hawking was a brilliant scientist, terrible theologian, terrible, you know. And so the last one is the God of the gaps, where people will say that hey, you just appeal to God. If you can imagine a continuum and halfway along it is how much people know. And the rest is the stuff we don't know. Like, why does rain happen, for example? What is consciousness? And the God of the gaps theory is, theory is that you Christians just appeal to God for the things that you can't understand. But science is going to catch up, and science is going to make continual progress, and it's going to chase that yeah. gap away. And that's an easy one. Lennox just says, we, are not, we do not say that God is there to appeal to for only the things we don't yet know, but, but for the whole thing, what we know and don't know. And so it's really a straw man argument. No Christian thinks that. But mm-hmm. so that gets back into the Henry Ford example. It's just different explanations. And they, yeah. they don't contradict each other. Um, they're just different levels, and you got to talk yeah. to Aunt Matilda to know, to know the why of things. And so, I really love that phrase. I think that would be a great like book title. You got to talk to Aunt Matilda. And you, just, <laughs> you never bring it up until like the last paragraph or something. <laughs> why is it? Yeah, why yeah, is, just, book why is this book called that? Maybe that's just a me thing. But um, no, I think th- this type of thinking I do come across where it's you know, it's only magic until you understand it, or it's only you know. You only have to appeal to God for the things you don't, but to, to actually science is, you know, one of the things that God put into this world. It's a beautiful thing. How all of it weaves together. That's not not like, it's not uh, completely separate from God. It's he, who's the one who put all of this here? Who's the one who wrote those laws? Who's the one who set all of those things in motion and continues to like weave his hand through it all that you can, that you can combine those things, I think, sometimes helps uh, violate the expectation that 
religion and science are completely separate from one another, that they're, you know, you have to choose one of these sides of something. And no, you can take a holistic view of these things as well. And you discover something new scientifically. I find it, maybe I am a more, more quantitative than I like to let on. But uh, when I see something new scientifically that gets discovered, that's beautiful. That's, that's still part of God's work at hand. And so to, and to see it as such, I think is perhaps even more meaningful than just, you know, here's a discovery that I can publish and, you know, use as groundwork for another study or something, you know, and maybe that's a, a maybe that's a disingenuous way of framing how oh, uh, completely so. secular uh, mind would view a new discovery in that light. But I think being able to hold both in your hand is uh, going back to the qualitative and quantitative side of, you know, comparison. You can have both of those things. Totally. They, they're not, they're not, they don't repel each other. This book I wrote the preface for Quick to Listen, it, it's helpful. They interviewed scientists, interviewed um, LGBTQ people, interviewed atheists, interviewed, there were four big categories. The, the chapter on science was really helpful because it helps, it helps me not to say stupid stuff about science. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. And one of the stupid things we might say is that scientists have no wonder, no sense of awe or wonder. And that's just not true. We need to be more honoring than that with people that have made our lives so comfortable, you know, and saved saved the lives of people that we care about. So there has to be that kind of balance. I'm ashamed to say one of my books has this stupid line in it of of something about evolution is a theory, not a law or something like that. And that just completely misunderstands those words. <laughs> so gravity is a theory too. <laughs> doesn't mean people question it. Uh, but so that's a, that's a utility is to, to engage scientists in their work and to admire the work and to share the fascination and to, and to, to not be, I don't know, unpleasant about the whole thing. Right. Yeah. I think the question of presuppositions is a helpful one. So if we're going to presuppose that everything has a natural cause, we're just going to start with that assumption. Then if you were on the world that was first created and it's six days old and you're chatting with Adam and Eve, and based on that presupposition, everything has a natural cause, you look around and say, well, how long did this take to, to arrive? And so with that presupposition, you'll just never find the truth. You will never know it you've already excluded it because of the presupposition. And so I think that's a useful thing. You brought up epistemology. And so at the end of the day, how do I, uh, what counts as knowledge? How, how do we know what we know? And our epistemology just leaves a huge door open for revelation. It just does. It says truth, human reason is just flawed and it's not going to ever get there. It'll never get past the combustion engine to Henry Ford. It'll never get past the cake to Aunt Matilda. And so there it is, you know. But I, I think of all the things I've ever thought of saying to people, I think that's been the one that most often, if there's any small breakthrough. Um, I remember years ago, I was a guy named Jack, and just within, in my non-scientific way, I talked about God creating a functioning universe um, and with an aspect of age to it. If you just saw it when it was six days old, you would see something that had been around forever, right? And I remember him saying that was the thing that was just got me over this stuff. And so the presupposition question I think is important. I like that phrase aspect of age mm -hmm. to, yeah, I'm trying to think of, uh, 
you know, what any type of art or music doesn't have or anything that's created has a, an aspect similar mm, interesting. where it's, it's not uh, maybe I need to think about that one more before I elaborate on it and make mm. my, a fool of myself. But I think the, you know, one of the things I do come across in this realm is that, okay, so we'll agree there's a God, but God just set all of these things in motion and now is hands off. And I think the, I don't, I don't know. You sh- I'm, I'm trying to think of like the, what a better way I could respond would be, but cause I've, I've, I've used the analogy of, you know, from our perspective, everything will have this cause and effect, you know, nature kind of set all these things in motion and they all, they all happen in this way and it gets more complicated, but still, you know, relatively predictable when you introduce an, a, a layer of language and narrative in the human species to that type of thing where, you know, certain occurrences or experiences for people in the past now, like, of course they would do this, uh, at this time. Um, you can take all of that there, but in, in, from our perspective, we can draw those conclusions but I'm, I'll say, you know, God didn't make a world that constantly contradicts itself. Even it, like, even if, um, you know, if, if you take that line of thinking, of course it would be that way if there was a God. However, I think the being able to think of it more from like a, the outside view where like this is a full tapestry that's being woven together simultaneously from God's perspective that all of these things are being woven in for our good throughout all time. And mm-hmm. to, to consider that as maybe an alternative to the, everything's just a, a, a sequence of events, things that happen one after the other ad nauseum, um, as a way of helping it. What, how did you phrase it? The, uh, even the supposition that you had excluded the, the truth or the possibility of finding truth right. when you, when you, if hold you're, that presupposition. If you're wrong on that level, mm-hmm. at your at your starting point, then the whole thing is going to be fatally flawed. And if you're committed to that idea of a materialistic explanation for everything, you've really kind of closed your mind to all possibilities. And one possibility being the reality of God, which just has become you used the word before, you used the word necessary. This has become necessary my thinking, whether philosophical or otherwise. I, I think um, what I kind of come back to, though, is resurrection as starting point. So we can talk all day about, you know, whatever, whatever the philosophical kind of conundrums are, but the resurrection stands as a fact, and we're going to deal with that, and it has implications, as I, as I always say. So for me, having a starting point, having a ground zero um, for my entire worldview might be a useful thing to yeah come back to that that does sound similar to my you know treating my faith or belief as a hypothesis and using that as a starting point for just questioning it and continuing to grow but even as a starting point for a conversation or a dialogue about it as well yeah i think of that as like the act of love where i'm willing to enter the thinking of the atheist and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm willing to think his thoughts with him for a while it's not comfortable yeah. it's not comfortable but I need to understand this person if I can, you know, hope to find the right words to lead out of that bleakness, like like we said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, maybe that's the thing I I work on next is because I I get into this uh, type of 
th- this area, I think this and the truth area fairly often. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a, a quite a far away away from the, you know, the apologetic type of conversation. And so I'm always trying to find ways to go back there without not acknowledging the things that we were just talking about. So, um, but maybe to try to, you know, not abandon the faith, but to consider the hypothesis as if it were true and to see where that goes and to um, maybe contribute thoughts and lines of questioning in that realm to see and, and to, to maybe understand a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's flat out Kierkegaard too is indirect communication can mean joining you in your misunderstanding temporarily. And then together we find our way out of it, which is not easy to do. It's a slippery concept, but it's kind of of what I hear. So, you know, we're not being exhausted with any of these topics and books are written about each of them. In my class, I have 20 students, some semesters, so I've got 20 defeaters. And we've just only talked about, you know, the uh, five or six of them. Um, but but after with my students is just to, to work out your approach because defeaters are endless. So what's your approach? Well, it's not to leave scriptural truth out of it, whether or not you quote chapter or verse, but we're not going to leave scriptural truth out of it. And we're going to find that road to Christ where we will testify, having dealt with you seriously, taking your questions seriously. But, but to bring that kind of clarity to how we each hone our approach to these things. Um, it's going to be an awful lot of listening. You know, listen, 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 like, mm-hmm. you know, until you've said the whole thing um, on your mind. In fact, you mentioned that before we got on. That might be a nice oh, yeah, way the, to tie this up. So we've talked about Carl Rogers, the, what is the, the Rogerian argument. Mm-hmm. I heard another um, clip about him where one of his principles for effective communication was to let the other person exhaust their argument and then to repeat it back to them satisfactorily. So to, to summarize or synthesize their argument in a way that they accept before you continue on with whatever counter arguments or, you know, additional questions or anything like that. And I thought that was maybe an interesting thing to bring up in, in especially this and the previous episode where you're, going to be engaging with people who you don't understand exactly what they're saying. I found difficulty. Sometimes I have, you know, friends that will be able to speak ad nauseum. And I think that's part of what they find interesting about their arguments is that, or why they're, they might have a proclivity towards what they're believing because they can just find an endless trail of something interesting and then keep going on it and going and going and going. Um, so I try to sometimes keep it as a stop, but in general, I think it's a good principle to adhere to where you, you don't, you, you hold pause on any, uh, excuse me, any, um, you know, questions you had or any, uh, I mean, one of the things Christians can often be accused of is as soon as something comes up that's false or that goes against their beliefs, they'll, they'll be the first to throw the stone, you know, and, and to, but to hold or suspend those judgments and to, um, let the other person completely say what they have to say before um, before moving onward. Mm-hmm. And, and the home run, if we haven't said it before, is when having done that, then somebody asked me, so what do you think? And it's almost a a human thing that they would do that eventually. Not everybody will, but yeah. once you ask me to give the reason for the hope that I have, I mean, for me, it all gets really easy at that point. 
Yeah. I'm happy to tell you. Cause that's a, and that's a natural segue into something completely different, right? Where you can, you can acknowledge what was said, but then you still have a pathway towards like, what if you thought about it this way? And then juxtaposition becomes a natural next step in the conversation versus needing to, you know, trace all the dots, mm-hmm. uh, in, in sequence like that. Yeah. Just to briefly review in just a few seconds. Not to be <laughs> quantitative about no, conversation. No. But <laughs> oh, God forbid. Yeah. So the six parts of Rogerian argument, we did this before earlier on. It's one, here's what we both care about. Not leaving it to chance that we know that there is some common ground. And then two is what you said. So I can accurately state back to you what you've been trying to say. Are you still there, John? You went dark. Oh, there you are. Yeah, I'm, it's so... This actually will lead into my uh, eventual <laughs> okay. uh, dessert, but yeah, okay. it, it is dark here. It's dark outside and I don't have lights on and I'm not within a <laughs> range of a, a light switch, but oh, very faintly, okay. very faintly I'm here. Step three is here's how I'd like to surprise you that I already agree with you. Step four is here's my point of view, which is what you were describing. Step five is you don't agree completely, but I'd like to think you might come this far in my direction. And step six is, isn't this fun to talk this way and how will we not be blessed by continuing? So, but in that context, the new thought for me is what you said about letting a person completely exhaust their argument. That's, that feels right to me. Yeah. Very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about the, uh, the next episodes we covered. I mean, we took two to cover the, uh, you know, the primary defeaters, which yeah. I think will be good. Hopefully there's some value here for people with the, you know, our three listeners, maybe, yeah. maybe soon four that will uh, have this type of conversation. Maybe there's some, some little nuggets here. Well, that, with our 7,500 plus downloads, our three listeners have been very busy. So we want to shout out, like to imagine, shout out to the, <laughs> I like to imagine that they you. just re- have it on repeat <laughs> and just, <laughs> I mean, again, I know that's not a big number. People have millions of views for their podcast. We we know that, but it still continues to surprise me. Yeah. So dessert. <clears throat> Ready for Yeah. S- so, well, over the course of our talk, I'm sitting by a window and that was the natural lighting that we had just to, we okay. can see each other. Um, but we just uh, had a time change. We are now on standard time instead of daylight saving time. So the... Uh, I was doing a little bit of math. Oh, here's the, here's the quant again. Mm. No, I, I was curious because it always, this time of year is a little bit depressing when it's, you know, 4.30 outside and it's already the sun is setting behind the mountains. And I just like to think that there's more of the day to have. And I, I did some math. I think excluding most of Arizona that doesn't do a time change and also excluding, I think Hawaii that doesn't do a time change. Um, they stay on the same time each year or throughout the entire year. There are 325 million Americans every year, give or take that are affected by this time change twice a year, which equates. If you take those people collectively, we are robbed of 37,000 years of daylight collectively every every um every fall and then 37,000 years of sleep in the spring when we spring <laughs> no forward. No wonder I'm so tired all so, the time. 
so exactly. So I just, uh, if there's a, um, <laughs> a humorous platform to, you know, have a hill to die on politically, it would be completely abolishing, you know, the, the time change back and forth and just putting everything on, uh, or at least everything consistent throughout the year, but preferably, uh, staying on daylight savings time all year round, which would allow for it to be still a little bit light out here. <laughs> Instead, it's a uh, 4:45 or so, and it's com- it's almost completely dark. So that's my uh, that's my, my. I vote think there was a there was a. Uh, it was in okay. Well, maybe time for a career change. No, just kidding. Uh, they. Uh, I think there was some legislation that went through the Senate. Or maybe it was the house, but uh, maybe predictably it was called the uh, Daylight Protection Act. But I think it um, in the new in the new year, it uh, kind of fell through because it didn't go through the other the other house or it didn't go through the Senate. And so it's got to start over from zero now. And now it's not really a topic. But so there is some there's maybe a little bit of hope. I was really excited when I saw that come through. I think I saw a tidbit of news. There's hope. It was dark, and I wished that it was light outside. And I was like, "Where do I cast my vote?" You know, <clears throat> so, it might not happen in your lifetime, John, but person can dream. I will. Uh, I will continue to do so now that I have so many more hours of darkness to be asleep. <laughs> I, I'm going to change my dessert because I just have like eight texts from my bride that I'm looking at here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, I want to talk about The Chosen, maybe for the future dessert, the TV show, The Chosen. Uh, and that'll be time to use the MLC disclaimer because I, I love the show and people can push back. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's so funny is that I'm looking at these texts from my bride and there's not a single mistake, which is really not like her. Um, we have this famous mom text thing in the family. Like, what are you talking about? They're just in, <laughs> indecipherable text messages. And I say this with, with total affection. What happened was the kids were all home for Thanksgiving and we played the game Jackbox. You know that game? Yeah. Is that that you have your phone yeah, and you can kind of. The TV's on you know, and there's just. Make your little answer the and you game compare is them. And there and we're all vote. on our phones. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one of the new games in the new package is a texting game. So they show a text. And then your team will all pick a spot in that text to start writing stuff. And there's always a context they provide. And, but you just start writing. We just start typing. And it just becomes this indecipherable thing. And it was hilarious because um, Connie destroyed us with her t- in that game. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like triple anybody else's score. <laughs> like she found her. She found her game. And now we're looking at these texts and they're all flawless. <laughs> I don't know what to make of it. Uh, I have some friends who who also play this game, and I've encouraged them if they're playing and they want another player, I'd play randomly from afar without being in front of the TV. Just like they have three people and they need a fourth, I'll be states away. You just sign me up. I'll I'll play blind and see what happens. So one of the but it's so fun. It's such a great one of the new games is a timeline game. It was just so funny because. I had just gone to a SPAM gathering. So SPAM is the acronym for Studies in Pastoral Ministries, right? I've gone to a gathering. We have these parties and all the future pastors get together and have a cookout and entertainment and then a devotion. It's wonderful. Well, at the SPAM gathering, our former dean of men did the entertainment. It was all about SPAM, literal SPAM. 
And so it included, when was spam invented? And so 45 minutes later, I'm home playing this Jackbox game. And the question was, when was spam invented? And so like, I know this. <laughs> 1936, I know this. So it's just one of those weird, weird coincidences. That's funny. But it's a very fun game. So when did this happen? When was this invented? And everybody guesses. And then they show the timeline of your guesses. And then it will reveal who is closest. And they'll score it. And it's, it's yeah, great stuff. That's great. I love the t-shirt one. Oh, yeah. Partly because of my, you know, it is a little side thing of mine to right. to make right. make t-shirts and whatnot but just <laughs> you have a you have a phrase and you have a picture and then you combine it together and then you know whoever's got the funniest whatever wins right. you vote on it it's always so always so funny oh yeah yeah it's a good time i like the rap battle it's my favorite one is there <laughs> naturally <laughs> <laughs> all the terrible terrible raps <laughs> all the mic drops so anyway that's my dessert hey very um, cool. So these texts always a pleasure. These texts are the reason I got to get off. I got to yeah. got to go run and help and stuff, sure. stuff. So far be it for me to hold you any longer. So yeah, uh, yeah. if you've got an awkward ending prepared, just uh, now is the time. Wait, what? Perfect. Thank you very much. Okay, <laughs> that is the end of the episode. Cue <laughs> the music.